Thank you for listening to our church podcast, where it is our joy to share helpful truths from the Bible. We pray this serves as one more tool to help develop leaders within our church and community who love and honor Jesus and reveal it by loving others. If you have any questions or comments about any of the messages, we invite you to join us on any Wednesday, 6 p.m., for a group discussion on the passages and sermons found here. Okay, thank you everybody for being here today. Uh, The name of our lesson will be, The Son of God is God the Son, Why It Matters, right? So why this topic? It it remains a matter of great disagreement both inside and outside the church. Uh, For many of us, this is a topic we studied right here in church. Uh, And over the course of our study of Luke, Pastor David has pointed out various passages that reveal Jesus operating in ways that only God has the right to operate in. And even as of very recent, I've been in the middle of multiple online conversations on the question of Jesus being God with numerous people, whether they be Muslim or whether they be professing Christians. They'll contend that Jesus is not God. So I thought this would be a fitting topic that would complement the study of Jesus that we've already been going through with uh, David. And so as we start off, we'll be retreading a little bit of some of the things that David has already taught before getting into uh, some other verses. So this message has two parts to it. First part is a brief of various ways Jesus revealed himself to be God. And part two goes a step further to ask why it matters that Jesus is God. So to flesh out this first point of how did Jesus reveal he was God, we'll review an account we've encountered in the book of Luke so far. In Luke 5, we'll recall the account of a paralytic whose friends were carrying him to Jesus to get him healed. With the crowd being so great, the friends couldn't reach Jesus, and so the friends of the paralyzed man take to the roof of the house Jesus is in and let down the paralyzed man on a stretcher through the roof tiles right in the midst of Jesus. And so we will be picking up at Luke 5.20. Most of the verses will be on screen, so I will be clicking through. So starting at Luke 5 and 20. So verse 20 says, And when he saw their faith, and this is Jesus speaking, when he saw the faith of those who went so far as to carry their friend to the roof and and sent him down on a stretcher, (laughs) you know, just to get to Jesus, Uh, It says in Jesus, when he saw their faith, he said unto him, talking about the paralytic man, thy sins are forgiven thee. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, who is this which speaketh blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And that's a true statement. Who can forgive sins but God alone? 22. But when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answering said unto them, What reason ye in your hearts? 23. Whether it's, easy, whether it's easier to say, Thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, Rise up and walk. So what is Jesus saying? Is it easier to say, Thy sins be forgiven, or is it easier to say, Get up and walk? Uh, as Pastor David had gone over in a previous lesson, both are equally impossible things in their own regard. Because regular people cannot forgive other people's sins. That's one thing. And unless the power of God is working, if you say to a a paralyzed man to get up and walk, nothing's going to happen. It's going to be hard to trick a paralyzed man into thinking that he's walking. 
So Jesus is saying, which is the harder saying? So the hardest saying in this, in this scenario would probably be get up and walk. If Jesus was to say your sins are forgiven, that's sort of an invisible transaction, right? Uh, you, you, some people might think it's true, some people might think it's not. But you say get up and walk to a paralyzed man, then people are going to see whether that happened or not. So Jesus continues in verse 24, he says, But that she may know that the Son of Man hath power upon the earth to forgive sins, he said unto the sick of the palsy, I say unto thee, arise and take up thy couch and go into thine house. Right? So Jesus is saying, I'm going to perform this miracle, and this is going to be evidence that I also have the power to forgive. So verse 25, and immediately he rose up before them and took up that whereon he lay and departed to his own house, glorifying God. And then 26, it says, and they were all amazed, and they glorified God, and were filled with fear, saying, we have seen strange things this day. And just an interesting aside, not only were they amazed, but they were filled with fear, right? That is an appropriate response when you have the sense that God's presence is, is truly near. It can have this effect of really making you compare yourself to God. And when you compare yourself to something that's absolutely pure, I think for every last one of us, we can see where we fall short. It says here, these people were amazed, but they also carried fear. Very interesting, right? Jesus being moved by the act of the friends, he declares the sins of the paralytic forgiven. But why not just say, be healed? Why also say your sins are forgiven? As we studied before, Jesus seemed to be making a special emphasis to the crowd of people he was standing before, an emphasis revealing the nature of his very own authority. He knows this will get a rise out of the religious leaders when he says, your sins be forgiven. And he wants that conversation to happen. He wants that conversation to unfold, as we just read in the verses. And so the passage continues. You know, here the scribes and the Pharisees rightly recognize that only one has the authority to forgive sins, and the one who has that authority is the one against whom all sins are committed, and that is God. They recognize that it would be blasphemy for another human being to forgive sins. In this action, Jesus is presenting only two options, either Jesus is God in the flesh or a human who is committing blasphemy. So that brings us to our very first point. How did Jesus reveal he was God? Well, number one, he forgives sins. And so let's move along to point two. I'll state point two, and then we'll look at some verses that back up point two. So number two, Jesus, he received worship. So first, before we look at examples of Jesus receiving worship, let's look at some examples of people giving inappropriate worship, just as a point of contrast. In Acts 10... In a vision, God tells a devout man named Cornelius to send for Peter. Peter would go on to give Cornelius and his household the full message of salvation. So we have Acts 10, verses 25 through 26, starting in verse 25, it says, And as Peter was coming in, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. And so this is Peter's response. But Peter took him up, saying, Stand up, I myself also am a man. So Peter did not accept this worship. 
you know, Peter was an apostle. He's one of the heroes of the faith, but he did not accept the worship of another human being. That worship only belongs to God. Let's look at another one. Revelation 19 and 10. So in Revelation, at this point in Revelation, an angel shows John the future, the future triumph of God over the, the evil of this world. So in Revelation 19 and 10, we read, and I, this is John speaking, I fell at his feet to worship him, talking about the angel. And he said unto me, see thou do with not, I am thy fellow servant and of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus, worship God. So isn't that very interesting, even an angel in heaven, right? John, seeing this vision, seeing all these magnificent things, he, he bows down to worship the angel, and the angel's like, get up. You know, I, I'm a fellow servant just he, he, with you. We both worship God. Save your worship for God. So now let's contrast that with examples of Jesus being worshiped. So to Mary Magdalene and the other Mary immediately after Jesus' resurrection. So that's, that's the scene. This is... Um, following soon after Jesus has resurrected after dying on a cross. And Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, they come out to adorn his body. And this is the scene that unfolds. So they go to the tomb. His body is not there. An angel tells them that Jesus is, is not here, that he has risen. And so soon after, as they go back to spread the news, they are actually met with the risen Jesus. And Jesus says this. Okay, so it says, after the angel tells them that Jesus has risen, it says in verse number 8, And they departed quickly from the sepulcher with fear and great joy, and did run to bring his disciples' word. And in verse 9 says, And as they went to tell the disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying, All hail. And they came and hailed him, by the feet and worshiped him. So who are they worshiping at this point? Okay, in verse 10, it says, Then Jesus said unto them, Be not afraid. Go tell my brethren that they go into Galilee, and there shall they see me. Right? So go tell my brethren that they go into Galilee, and there they shall see me. At this point, Jesus doesn't say, Whoa, what are you doing? Right? When, when, they, when they worship him, Jesus doesn't say, stop, you know, save your worship for God. Jesus accepts that worship, and then he gives instruction. He says, be not afraid, and tell my brethren that you saw me. So what a difference between Peter, who was being worshiped by Cornelius, Peter saying, hey, stand up, I'm, you know, I, I, I'm just a man, between the angel saying, I'm just a fellow servant, save your worship for God, but here we don't see that same response from Jesus. And so, moving on to another scene. In this scene, the Pharisees interrogate a man Jesus just healed of blindness. They refuse to believe Jesus healed him, and they're upset at the man's answers to their questions. And they get so upset that they cast him out of the synagogue. And so this is where the scene in John chapter 9 picks up. So starting at verse 35. It says, Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And when he had found him, he said unto him, Dost thou believe on the Son of God? Verse 36. He answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I might believe on him? Verse 37. And Jesus said unto him, Thou hast both seen him, and it is he that talketh with thee. 38. 
And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Right? So the response of the man who was healed of his blindness, once he encountered Jesus for the second time, the one who healed him, he worshiped him. So when we see people worship Jesus, there is never a time when you see Jesus go, wait, what are you doing? Don't do that. We never see that of Jesus. So as a review, how did Jesus reveal that he was God? Number one, he forgives sins. Number two, he received worship. And then the, the third category that we're going to get into, and uh, keep in mind that there's more than just these three that I'm mentioning. There's a lot more. But just for the sake of time, yeah, I narrowed it down to three, right? So this third one, Jesus claimed the titles of God. So in John chapter 8, verses 57 through 59, um, in this scene, the Jews are trying to give Jesus the verbal, the verbal shakedown, basically, uh, questioning him on who he thinks he is and how he can have the nerve to make the claims he does. Jesus makes a provocative claim about having seen the forefathers of the Jews, which is Abraham. So we pick up at verse 57. It says, Then said the Jews unto him, Thou art not fifty years old, and hast thou seen Abraham? Verse 58, Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, and this is an important term here, before Abraham was, I am. I am. Before Abraham was, I am. So at the title, I am, the Jews, they basically they lose it. They go mad. Why do they go mad? Well, they try to kill him. And why do they do that? Because they recognize that Jesus was claiming himself to be equal with God. Where else in scripture do we find the title, I am? In Exodus 3, we see God sending Moses to bring the Hebrews out of slavery and out of Egypt. So in Exodus chapter 3, so in Exodus chapter 3, verse 13, it says, And Moses said unto God, Behold, when I come unto the children of Israel, and shall say unto them, The God of your fathers hath sent me unto you, and they shall say to me, What is his name? What shall I say unto them? This is Moses asking a question back to God. You know, you're sending me, but when the, 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 the Hebrews ask me, who sent me, what's your name, what am I to say? And so we see here, as it continues, it says in verse 14, and God said unto Moses, I am that I am. And he said, thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am hath sent me unto you. So we have the name I am. This is why the Jews in the verses that we just read completely lost it not believing that Jesus was who he was claiming to be, understanding that in Jesus saying, saying before Abraham was, I am, that Jesus was claiming equality with God. So they, and of course, they tried to kill him, but Jesus just passed right through the midst of him. So it wasn't the time yet. Another title we see Jesus claim is that of the first and the last. So we have I am, and the title that we're going to look at, this is the second title actually, is the first and the last. And with this, we return to the second half of today's scripture reading. In this passage, Jesus has appeared to John in a vision. And Jesus has this splendid yet frightening appearance as the power of God basically radiates through his body. So, he so Jesus is taking on this magnificent appearance, but it's frightening <laughs> as John sees it. 
So this is what we see when we go to Revelation chapter 1, verse 17. So 17 says, And when I saw him, again, this is John speaking, I fell at his feet as dead, and he laid his right hand upon me, talking about Jesus, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. Fear not, I am the first and the last. This is Jesus speaking. Verse 18, I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and of death. So again, we're zeroing in on that phrase, I am the first and the last. And so by contrast, where else do we see that in Scripture? So we'll go to Isaiah chapter 44, verse 6 which says, Thus saith the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, and I am the last. And beside me there is no God. So this is God speaking in the Old Testament, saying that I am the first, I am the last, and besides me there is no God. And in the New Testament, in Revelation, we have Jesus speaking, saying, I am the first, and I am the last, right? And I've had people try to, it's, it's really interesting. So the arguments that people will make to sort of um, argue for that stance that Jesus is not God. So I'll present, say, that verse where it says, that we just read in 17, where Jesus is saying, I am the first and the last. And they'll say, well, that's not actually Jesus speaking. You know, that's, that's God speaking. That's God the, the Father speaking. That's not Jesus. And then I'll go to, again, right to verse 18, and where it says, I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. So has God the Father been dead? No. No. All right? And it was really interesting. I had <laughs> one time after I made that point, one guy sort of shifted his argument and said, well, you know, what happens when the disciple, the word of the disciples contradict the word of Jesus. It's like, oh, no, no, no. You can't, you can't all of a sudden shift the argument and now the, the disciples don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> yeah, so it makes it very clear. When Jesus says, I am the one, I am the first and the last, I am he, you know, basically who once died and I'm alive again forevermore. Does any regular man get to claim the title, the first and the last? No, only God. But here we see Jesus claim that title for himself. So, so far, we have, I am, we have the first and the last in terms of the claimed titles that Jesus has taken. And now we will move on to the third title. That third title will be, the Almighty, and we'll take a look at Revelation chapter 1 and 8, and it says, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. So this is still Jesus speaking. And again, we are zeroing in on that, that term, the Almighty, this time. So where do we have a parallel to that in Scripture? Well, we can go all the way back to Genesis. So Genesis 17 and 1, it says, And when Abraham was 90 years old and nine, the Lord appeared to Abraham, well, Abram, and said unto him, I am the Almighty, the Almighty God. Walk before me and be thou perfect. Got another verse. 
Genesis 28 and 3, and God Almighty bless thee and make thee fruitful and multiply thee that thou mayest be a multitude of people. So this is a blessing being given and the person given a blessing is, is using the term God Almighty. God Almighty bless thee. Another verse, Genesis 35 and 11, and God said unto him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall be of thee, and kings shall come out of thy loins. And we got a whole multitude of verses, and these are just four of like many verses that use the term Almighty, but every time it's used, it's speaking of God, God alone. So all this leaves no doubt that the Almighty is a title reserved specifically for God. All throughout Scripture, and here Jesus is in Revelation 1 and 8 saying, I am the Almighty. So this is sort of part one of the study, and now we get into the part two of it. So just as a review, there's many passages in Scripture that speak of Jesus as God, and where Jesus speaks of himself as God. It is only for the sake of time that I state only three of those things, but there are far more. Those three things Jesus did that only God can do, he forgives sins, he received worship, Jesus claimed the titles of God. So I've begun, like I said before, I've been arguing back and forth online in recent weeks about the deity of Jesus. Uh, they'll cite a verse like John 8 and 42 where Jesus states, God has sent me. So how can Jesus be God if God is the one who sent him? That's the argument. My response is yes, God the Father sent God the Son. And someone responded with Mark 14 and 62. Mark 14 and 62 says, you will see the Son of Man, referring to Jesus himself, uh, sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. And so they'll say, see, that's Jesus. And he's seated next to God, speaking of God the Father. My response is basically the same as the previous response. It's God the Son sitting next to God the Father. So the Bible is clear there is only one God, right? So this is where it can get confusing for people. We serve only one God, and that's true. If we serve only one God, how do we have God the Son sitting next to God the Father? As the Word of God reveals, yes, we serve only one true God, yet this God is complex in his unity. That unity consisting of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Right, so this is the reality that we try to encapsulate when we talk of the Trinity. We're talking of one God being who is complex in his unity. And so that's sort of my super simplification of it. That is my super simplification. There's a lot more that can be said. That's my super simplification of it. It is one God being who is complex in his unity. And that unity consists of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. As a matter of contrast, if God is one being and he is complex in his unity and that unity consists of Father, Son, Spirit, how do we contrast to that? So I'll say, hey, Deborah, what are you? You are one human being. Who are you? You are Deborah, one person, right? So we're pretty simple. We're one being, which is a human being, and one person, each of us, right? But by contrast, God is beyond that. God is one being, but yet at the same time, three persons. 
it's hard for us to wrap our head around it. There's nothing in creation that's like God. He's so far beyond us. And so it does boggle the mind. And so there's many people out there will say, well, that's illogical. And it was really interesting. I was speaking to a friend of mine about this, and he made a good point. He says that it's not illogical, it's incomprehensible. Something being incomprehensible doesn't make it illogical. And he reminded me of an example that I'll use here. So some of you may have heard the illustration of the 3D sphere that passes through a two-dimensional world. It poses the question, how would a 3D sphere look to people living on a two-dimensional flat plane? So we have our flat plane, like a piece of paper, say for example, we have the 2D man, he lives on this flat plane. And out here, this is where we live. We live in three dimensions, where things have uh, depth and things are around. And uh, so how would it look for this sphere to pass through that 2D plane? If that sphere were to pass through that, pl that flat 2D plane, to the people in Flatland, the sphere might look like a circle, might look like a simple 2D circle to those people. But without them becoming three-dimensional themselves, they can't comprehend what that circle looks like in three dimensions. You get the illustration? So out here in 3D space, that sphere that passes through that 2D plane, to the, to the people on that flat surface, that sphere might look like a circle to them. But without them actually being three-dimensional themselves, they can't comprehend us. They can't comprehend how something can be round in 3D, right? Uh, all they can comprehend is the circle as it passes through their dimension. And so the sphere is not illogical. It's simply incomprehensible to the man who lives in this 2D world. And this is what we experience when we try to wrap our mind around God and his complex unity. We have a hard time comprehending a dimension that is far beyond us. As God the Father is the only one who can forgive sins, receive worship, and claim the titles of God, we see from Scripture that Jesus can too. The Son of God is God the Son. So that brings us to our part two, basically. Um, I don't want to leave it at just Jesus is God, right? Let's go one step further. Say you're convinced from Scripture, yes, Jesus is God. Now comes the question, but why is that important? So say your car breaks down on you. That car was your only means of transportation and you're in a very desperate need to get to a lot of places. You can't afford to fix it, you can't afford to replace it, and you can't find anyone willing to take you where you need to go. Then someone out of the blue says, I have a spare car you can use. It's reliable and it runs perfectly. You can have it. Would you accept the car? What if the color is your least favorite color? Would you still accept the car? <laughs> I think for most people, the most important thing would be that the car is capable of getting them from point A to point B. I doubt that for most people in that situation I described that they would care that much what color the car is. Now with that scenario in mind, I think of Jesus being God. And asking why it's important that Jesus is God, Jesus' Godhood is much more important and vital than the color of that car. The color of the car is, a uh, is a really a negligible feature considering the scenario that we're in. But the fact that Jesus is God is not negligible. It is a vital attribute. 
So the question is, why does it matter? So on this question of why it matters, I'll first start with Romans chapter 5, verses 5 through 9. And this is Paul writing. It says, For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. So what is that saying? It's, sort of, it's contrasting what Christ did for us versus our human nature. For righteous and good people, even for righteous and good people, people will hardly be willing to die for a righteous person. And it's saying, but in our case, in verse 8, uh, verse 8, it says, But God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So what is that saying? What's the point of comparison? In the one case, in our sort of natural selves, rarely will you get somebody who will die even for a righteous and good person. But by contrast, Jesus Christ died for us while we were in our evil. He didn't look down upon us and like, look at all those wonderful and righteous people. I'm going to take a bullet for him. No, he didn't. He looked down on us and we were wicked. And in our wickedness, Christ decided to die for us. That's a point of contrast between God and between man, between what we would naturally gravitate towards and the ways that we would naturally act versus the way God acts supernaturally, according, well, according to his God nature. In verse 8 here, when it says, but God commendeth his love toward us, does anybody know what that word commendeth means? So in this case, commendeth is the old king, the King James definition is actually to prove, right? So that's what commendeth means here. It means to prove. So it's basically saying, but God proved his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And then verse 9 says, Much more then, being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. So Jesus died for us. He proved his love. God proved his love for us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And now through the blood of Jesus, we are declared righteous, is what the verses are saying. So as we look, the word commendeth, it means to prove. So I will assert that one of the reasons it matters that Jesus was God was due to this ultimate proof it provided of God's love for us. And in verse 7, it states a general truth. How many of us would jump in front of a bullet to save the life of a person you know is wicked? It says here that rarely will a person take a bullet for even a righteous man. Rarely would a person dare to die for a good person. But God didn't look down going, look at all those righteous people. I'm going to take the bullet for them. No, he looked down at us while we were in our evil, yet sinners, as the verses say. And Christ died for us. There have been popular critics of Christianity who characterize the death of Christ on the cross as cosmic child abuse, as though God raised a child and sent him to be tortured to death. I dare say that if Jesus were just a regular human who got exalted for the role of being a sacrifice, those critics might have a point. But those who critically call the crucifixion human sacrifice ignore or don't understand that this wasn't just some person. This was God himself stepping into humanity. God's sacrifice, God's sacrifice was not like that of people sacrificing some young lady to the gods in return for a successful season of crops. Uh, there's a stark difference between sacrificing yourself and sacrificing someone else. 
I got this example of a real life sacrifice here. It says, John Andrews Barnes III was posthumously awarded the Medal of Honor when he jumped on a grenade to save the lives of wounded comrades in the Vietnam War, right? So we intuitively know that there's a difference between a man who jumps on a grenade to save his fellow soldiers versus sacrificing someone, some other person for your own personal gain, right? It might be heroic if I jumped on a grenade to save everyone here, right? So you might consider me a hero if a grenade fell you know, into the sanctuary and I jumped on it to save everybody's life, right? It would not be so heroic if I threw Marvin on a grenade to save us all, right? <laughs> so if God had just sent another human instead of himself, would that not cheapen the sacrifice on the cross? But God put his own skin in the game, so to speak, and it means so much more as a result. So why does it matter that Jesus is God? Well, it is a grand proof of God's love for us. Um, 1 Timothy 2 and 5, it tells us that Jesus is our one mediator, get that one mediator, between humanity and God the Father. So when we pray in Jesus' name, it's because Jesus is our access to God the Father. Jesus speaks on our behalf. Our prayers reach God the Father through God the Son, who is Jesus. In Hebrews 4 and 15, it states, For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted, like as we are, yet without sin. So this is saying that Jesus is touched by our infirmities, meaning that he understands our weaknesses. He knows, that it's, he knows what it's like to be human, basically. Jesus possesses both the mind of God while now understanding the human experience completely. And so we can have great confidence that in the hardest points in our lives that God, who came into humanity, and felt the human pains we do, knows how we feel. Have you been betrayed by someone close to you? Guess what, God knows how you feel. Uh, have you been injured? Are you in severe pain? God quite literally knows what that's like. Has someone close to you died? Has someone lost a son? God literally knows what that's like. Not in some strictly intellectual way, not in some sort of mental, pain is the firing of synapses. No, he knows personally through experience what it feels like to suffer and to hurt and to lose people. God knows that because God came into humanity and he suffered and he died and he was resurrected. So God is touched by our suffering. So why does it matter that Jesus is God? Number one, it is grand proof of God's love for us. And number two, as both God and man, Jesus is the best possible mediator between us and God the Father, understanding human, the human experience perfectly and also possessing the mind of God that makes him the perfect mediator between us and God the Father. And so this gets to our third point. Why does it matter that Jesus is God? Well, number three, Jesus had to be perfect and infinite. Go to 1 John chapter 2. Verse 2, which states, And he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So that word, and he is the propitiation for our sins. Who knows what propitiation means? <laughs> almost. Almost. It's the uh, satisfaction. 
So Jesus was the satisfaction for our sins. The, the, the price he paid satisfied the sin debt, basically, that we owe. So hypothetically speaking, if God had been able to present, say, a sinless man uh, who was not God, would this one human being be able to die in the place of all humanity, potentially billions of people? In Jesus, we have someone who is both fully God and fully man. As God, Jesus is perfectly sinless with the infinite capacity to pay for the sins of all mankind. And to be clear, he had to be sinless or else what would have happened? He wouldn't be able to pay for anybody else's sin. He would be up there on the cross paying for his own sin. So if it were possible for a regular man to be presented as the substitute for our sins, how many people could that man actually provide forgiveness for? Might it be one other person? Might it be two other per people? I, I think we have evidence that it, it wouldn't be uh, billions of people or millions of people that a regular man would be able to, to pay for, right? To be able to provide forgiveness for. So, and since Jesus possesses perfection as God, he is our perfect mediator forever between us and the Father forever, as the scriptures say, with no chance of turning into, well, turning in a corrupt direction. So as our mediator and Jesus being perfect, there's no chance of him turning in a corrupt direction. Only God is perfect. Nothing God created is perfect. Anything less than perfect has the potential to become corrupted. We see this most famously in Satan, who is one of God's heavenly created beings. But in Satan, we see that even heavenly beings can become corrupted. And so Jesus being God and perfect, he remains forever our perfect mediator. So even when God made everything good at the beginning of the universe, he, those things that he made good were not perfect as God is perfect. And so anything that is less than perfect is capable of corruption. If God had sent a regular man, or if God had sent an angel even, as the sacrifice, we might not be able to be fully confident that that angel or that man or whoever could actually serve as a perfect mediator for us who doesn't later go corrupt. But Jesus being God and perfect, we have the confidence that that will never happen. So why does it matter that Jesus is God? It is grand proof of God's love for us. As both God and man, Jesus is the best possible mediator between us and God the Father. And number three, as we just discussed, Jesus has to be perfect and infinite. And last point, it helps us to know our place in creation. So this is the very last point. So lastly, let's examine why the fact Jesus' Godhood matters not only to us, but it seems to matter a lot to false religions, too. Why does it matter that Jesus is God? That's a question that the false religions tend to uh, be interested in as well. So one of the notions spreading like wildfire today is that we can be our own gods. When it comes to false religions that dress themselves up to look like Christianity, the godhood of Jesus matters to them as well. A common characteristic of these cults is, that, is the notion that we can become gods. This is a lie that goes all the way back to the book of Genesis, the lie which the serpent tempted Eve with. If we can become as gods, then Jesus' exclusivity as God must be knocked down a peg. And some cults, rather than recognizing Jesus as God, will distort Jesus as simply being 
a God. Notice the distinction. It's, it's taking Jesus who is God and it's saying, oh, no, no, no. Jesus is not the God. Jesus is just a God. And just like Jesus is a God, we can too become a God. So this is one of the common characteristics of cults and false religions that dress themselves up to look like Christianity, but in reality teaching deception. So if there is one last point I would make today, it's that it's vital that we know that Jesus is God and not a God. Again, catch me, it's vital that we know that Jesus is God and not a God, right? <laughs> so we do indeed serve one God, that one God is revealed to be complex in his unity. God the Son, God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, that is what composes the unity of our one God that we serve. But let's not fall for the deception that Jesus is just a God and that we can become a God just like that. No, no, no. Let's forever recognize ourselves as God's beloved creation, but let's not fall for the old lie of Satan that we can become as gods. God says that there's no other God beside me. And that's exactly what it means. There is no other God beside me. <laughs> All right? So, as review, how did Jesus reveal he was God? Number one, he revealed sins. Number two, he received worship. Number three, Jesus claimed the titles of God. And then as we looked at in part two, why does it matter that Jesus is God? Number one, it is a grand proof of God's love for us. Number two, as both God and man, Jesus is the best possible mediator between us and God the Father. Number three, Jesus has to be perfect and infinite. And so as we close today, let's end by always recognizing that all of this that our God went through, that Jesus, God the Son, went through to provide us redemption, to save us from our sins, to save us from hell, this is not automatically applied to just everybody. We have to accept this gift. And let, uh, let us always remember to spread that message. God has been rich in his mercy and his kindness and his love for us. He jumped in front of a bullet for us, basically, to save us while we were wicked. How many of us would jump in front of a bullet for a criminal? Not many of us would do that, but God did that for all of us. So let us not forget to spread that message and I'll pray as we close today Lord thank you for your word Lord thank you for sending your son uh, thank you Lord for revealing the truth thank you Jesus for being the, the perfection that you are God the son let us realize that you came into humanity that you suffered among humanity that you literally broke your body for us, and that through that we can be truly confident that we serve a God who actually knows what pain is like, not a God who is sort of distant, who sort of created the system and the pains and who, who sees it happening. And No, one who goes a step further and knows what it's like himself. Thank you for being that God for us, and thank you for saving us, Lord Jesus. We hope the message you just heard was helpful to you. It means a lot to us that you would join us for this podcast. For more information about our church and meeting times, visit lbcmiller.com 
or call us at 219-885-9303. We would love to hear from you.